Acts 21, uh, page 542, under a chair in front of you is a paper Bible. Uh, if you don't have a paper Bible, you're welcome to keep that. Uh, if, you, uh, if you already have a Bible or maybe you use an app, I'm not sure what page it's on, but we're continuing through our series in the book of Acts, and uh, we've got about seven messages left in the book of Acts, and so uh, it should carry us through January. And then uh, my intention is to uh, get into a gospel, uh, the gospel of Matthew, uh, as soon as we wrap up the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the seven mountains in the book of Matthew. If you're not familiar with that, Matthew is structured around uh, seven different mountaintop experiences where a mountain is mentioned, and they correspond to each other in a really interesting way. And so if you're looking forward, uh, about eight weeks from now, uh, if you want to start reading through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, then then you'll be well prepared. Until then, we're going to continue with our series in, in Acts, and uh, this has taken us a couple of years uh, in two different seasons, and uh, and we've made it all the way up to Acts 21. And you know, the more I've reflected on uh, this particular passage today, uh, I'm realizing that Paul's ministry is coming to an end. His public, free ministry. Uh, really, if you if you've read Acts enough, you know that uh, that here in 21, as soon as he goes to Jerusalem, uh, it, basically the last uh, 10 years of his life is imprisonment from from year roughly 57 to year roughly 67 when Paul was martyred in Rome. And so this last stretch, these last eight chapters of his life, you know, as fast and as exciting as Acts starts, uh, yeah, I'm not faulting the Holy Spirit or, or Luke, but, but these last eight chapters seem to be, and Paul was in jail, and Paul got on a boat, and then they shipwrecked, and they docked here, and they went there. and It just doesn't have as much... Um, uh, activity as that first uh, first 15 to 20 chapters. But this passage is important to us. Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for rebuking and correction and training in righteousness. And so uh, we're not going to skip any of it. We're going to read. By the time we're done, we will have read every single word of the book of Acts. And so we're going to continue that today, looking at verses 1 through 16. And just a preview, uh, the main ideas that come out of this particular section of Scripture is that Paul had these incredible Christian friends. And it's demonstrated in a few key ways in this passage. And not only that, but Paul, Paul is, is experiencing the cost of discipleship. He's really getting a glimpse, as if he hadn't already, as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to see those two themes as we read this passage together. So you follow along, and we'll read together verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. If you'll remember, Paul had wrapped up his three-year Ephesian ministry, then he went into Corinth, and then he went into Macedonia, and now he's circling back around. And last week we talked about his farewell speech, one of the more famous farewell speeches in Scripture. Uh, Paul gave a farewell speech to the Ephesian pastors, and uh, and they knelt on the ground, and they prayed together, and they wept because he said, you, you, you know, this is the last time you'll see my face. And so Paul had some idea of what was coming. And so that's where we pick up here in, in verse 1 of chapter 21, is that now he's left uh, the Ephesian elders and he's making his way to Jerusalem. 
Verse 3, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it is breathed out by you. Uh, Peter tells us that uh, men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we trust that you have been able to preserve your word and that uh, that you may speak to us through it today. And we pray that you would use your word and that it might shape us, and that it would challenge us, that it would inform us, that we might grow more and more like you, Jesus, and that uh, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. We pray that you would use this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, uh, I, I had been on many, many mission trips in my life. Uh, had been a part of short-term mission teams going to different places. I think one of the first ones I went to was a, a place called uh, Irapuato and Guanajuato, uh, Mexico. And uh, it was a really, really good trip. After that, we went to Rome and, and did another mission trip the year after. And it was early on in my conviction as a believer that when we would take these short-term mission trips, that, that one of my goals was everywhere I went, I wanted to leave with friends. I wanted to have uh, names and faces of people and their f- address and the opportunity to correspond with other believers that I met on all these trips. And, and to this day, I think I've been on 25 or more uh, short-term mission trips. And in every one of those places, that has been my goal, is to leave with friends, many of whom I still keep up with today. And uh, and when I see this passage, uh, I, I see that Paul uh, had so many friends and so many people who, who really just loved him dearly. Uh, Paul made 
connections everywhere he went, and they were bonded by this union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. All these people, we can see just in the reading of this passage, that everywhere he was going and saying goodbye, that uh, people were um, concerned about him. They cared deeply for him. They were weeping, and they were crying, and they were praying with him and visiting with him. Uh, This section is kind of summarized, if you look back at chapter 20, verses 36 through 38, with the Ephesian pastors, after his farewell speech, it says he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all of them. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Over the next four places that Paul visits along this journey to Jerusalem, uh, we see examples of other disciples, other people who show this care and concern uh, with him. Uh, We see it in um, um, the four places where he goes, into Tyre, into Caesarea, into Judea, Jerusalem. In all these places, I want to show you four examples that are demonstrated to Paul through Christian friendship in Tyre, Ptolemy, Caesarea, and Jerusalem. All right, four things that you can see here about Christian friendship, if you're taking notes. Uh, The first one is the practice of hospitality. The practice of hospitality. We see it in verse 8, where he goes to stay with Philip the Evangelist. Uh, I don't know why Luke threw in the detail that these daughters were unmarried. I don't know that they would appreciate that very much, but but these four unmarried daughters uh, is the detail that we have, and they are prophets, and they uh, Paul stays with them, and his team stays with them uh, for a period of time. We also see hospitality in verse 16 uh, with Manasin of Cyprus, and Paul is allowed to live with him and stay with him for his time there in, in Jerusalem. Hospitality is this act or discipline, uh, particularly with Christ followers, where we bring people into our homes and we help them to feel at home with us. It's a sense of welcoming others in the name of Jesus and looking after their needs as though they were family. I can remember uh, when I was first a believer, uh, just newly converted to Christianity, uh, to Jesus in February of of, uh, of 19, I had to remember, 1991, and uh, back in the 1900s. Um, and when I became a believer, uh, our family entered into a, a real period of difficulty. Uh, we got evicted from a house that we lived in, and so um, within a day, I had to find a place, help my mom move, and my little sister, and my little brother and I went and spent, um, tried to find my dad, and when we found him, uh, there wasn't necessarily a good situation. And so just for about a week or so, um, I... I just didn't have anywhere to to live. And so a friend heard of my situation and he opened up his office uh, break room so that after school and after I got off uh, from football and went to work at a a Mexican restaurant in Norman there, uh, I could stay in his office. I could shower in the break room, sleep on the couch. And this lasted maybe eight or ten days. Uh, But as soon as people um, found out, because I was a brand new believer, and as soon as other believers in the church where I was going at Trinity and Norman, as soon as they found out the situation, a couple named Keith and Virginia Wendorf uh, immediately came and got me, wouldn't take no for an answer, set up an extra space on the floor in uh, in their son's room, and, and allowed me to stay with them. I ended up staying with them for 
five or six months. And, and this was my first introduction to Christian hospitality. It was uh, an incredibly godly environment, uh, lots of encouragement. Uh, when other people in the church found out my situation and my need, discreetly and appropriately, they, they began to help me out. Uh, I, I remember getting uh, gift cards and uh, being able to buy clothes and, and just they took care of me. They took really, really good care of me. And to this day, Keith and Virginia have an incredibly special place in my heart. One of our roles as believers is that we're supposed to show hospitality whenever we have the opportunity. Romans twelve thirteen says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2, Anyone who wants to be an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable, in addition to being able to teach. Uh, women, likewise, in 1 Timothy 5.10, are instructed that uh, they should be put on a roll if they have a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Titus 1.8 says, Be hospitable. Uh, an overseer must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then there's that unusual warning in Hebrews 13.2 that says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. We have this uh, this instruction within the New Testament. First uh, Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this made sense in the New Testament Roman world because there weren't necessarily always Airbnbs and hotels and things like that we would know. But but it was important for you every time you would go in to visit a place that, that you would stay with other believers. And I think that this is a practice that we've some, in many ways, gotten out of the habit of. There's a great book that I haven't read <laughs> um, called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. But it's all about hospitality, and the portions I've read about it, it tracks her conversion experience where where she had experienced um, life as a non-believer, and a pastor and his wife began to invite her into their home. And, and over a course of years, over just uh, meals and spending time with her, this sort of Christian hospitality won her heart over. It's an important aspect of your Christian experience that you be hospitable, using your resources in your home in such a way that people feel the love of Christ in you and through you in that way. I think a second thing that we see here in this passage is that these believers show Paul affection. Not just the Ephesian pastors where there was much weeping and embracing Paul and they kissed him and there was the sorrowful uh, departure there. We also see it in verses 5 and 6 that the disciples entire, they accompany Paul with their wives and their children and their husbands and they all go together with him. Uh, The disciples at Caesarea surely show affection for Paul, urging him not to go to Jerusalem. He says to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? All of these things uh, give us an image of a real Christian affection. An affection is simply a feeling of fondness or a liking that is demonstrated in appropriate ways. 
And I mention that appropriate because not everybody is real touchy-feely. And so uh, if you're, if you're a, a super affectionate person and you come to somebody who's not super affectionate, it doesn't always come across the way uh, you intend to. And there are, of course, appropriate boundaries that we have to display uh, singles and uh, toward children and, and others, someone else's spouse, all those kinds of things. But appropriate displays of affection. Paul even told the Romans to love one another with this brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing each other honor. These are the kind of relationships that Paul had experienced and that we experience in Christianity, in our walk with the Lord. The third thing we see in this way is that they prayed together. At all these places where Paul visits, we read that they knelt down and they prayed together. Verse uh, Chapter 20, verse 36 uh, verse 5, they knelt on the beach and prayed. And I just want to encourage you that um, in this example, we see that very few things knit a believer's heart together with another believer like praying together. It's a practical way that we can bear each other's burdens. Uh, it's, a, it's a way that we take a burden that someone is experiencing and we, and we take it to the only one who can do anything about that burden. We are often powerless over our situations. Maybe a crisis in health, or maybe a crisis in finances, or a crisis in some other way. In all these ways, praying together is what helps ease that burden. It's, it's a practical way. Uh, Peter tells us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Praying together with other believers. How many of you are regularly, weekly involved in, a, in praying with other believers? Just raise your hand. Lots of people, right? Just spending time, bringing our needs together before the Father. This is one of those moments that's, it's a, it's a way that we corporately cast our cares on the one who cares for us the most. This is one of the greatest privileges I have of, of being in ministry, being a pastor full time, is that, that almost daily, uh, I'm able to pray for or pray with somebody in a situation where they need this sort of prayer. Uh, the fourth thing that we see in this aspect of Paul's relationships with his friends uh, is that he's discussing these important life decisions. Paul is up against a, a real crossroads here. In many ways, he is. Uh, he told us in, in chapter 19 that he is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, in, in, in chapter 19, 21, it says he was resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 20, verse 22, it says he was compelled uh, or constrained to go to Jerusalem by the Spirit. I didn't really know the word constrained, but to be constrained is to be compelled or forced to follow a particular course of action. Paul knew that the Holy Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. He also had some inkling, some idea of what would take place to him in Jerusalem. Oftentimes when Paul recited his conversion experience, he would tell how on the road to Damascus, when the Lord Jesus spoke to him, that the, Jesus told him how much he must suffer for his name. Paul knew that in every place he went, in every city, that there were beatings or imprisonment or trials or difficulties. And so it's no different as he's making his way to Jerusalem. He was compelled by the Spirit, but we also see that he sought input from others, other godly people around him, uh, into these sort of major life plans and decisions. He presented his plans. He laid out the Lord's leadership in his life to other people. He listened carefully. He weighed out what it is that they might be instructing him or counseling him or advising him to do. Listen, Paul allowed other people 
to have godly influence in his life and decision-making. In this passage, we also see, though, um, uh, that other believers who also seem to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they seem to be warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem, don't they? What do we make of this, where the Spirit is leading Paul, and at the same time, you get Agabus, and he's got this prophecy, and maybe he just saw a belt lying in the house, and he said, whoever's belt this is, uh, they're going to be bound to go, uh, this is how they'll be bound and jailed in Jerusalem. Uh, We see the disciples urging him not to go in verse 12. In verse 4, it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself by leading some people to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul in chapter 19 and chapter 20 is telling everybody that he's being compelled by the Spirit or resolved in the Spirit. How do we, what do we do with this? What do you do when you're faced with a crossroads and there is godly counsel on both sides giving you opposing advice on what to do? How do we make sense of this seemingly opposite advice? I don't believe the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself. Uh, I I, I believe that the Holy Spirit allowed these other people to show the level of concern, but also what could and would take place in Jerusalem. Uh, In the same way that the closer Jesus got to his crucifixion, the more afflicted he was, right? The night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying and he's so burdened by what this cross would look like that he's asking other, you know, Peter, James, and John to come and pray with him. And, and he has more insight into what it's going to look like and what it's going to feel like. And, and this sort of grief was overwhelming to him. And I think in the same way, the Holy Spirit is revealing to people around Paul, listen, if you stay on this course, it becomes a real test of his discipleship. It becomes a test of his obedience to the Holy Spirit. The the more information that he had about what would take place, the more he had a picture of the cost of discipleship. The question for you then is how how do you how well do you listen to others? Are you a teachable person? Do you listen to other godly people in your life? Do you uh, make yourself vulnerable enough to present a situation to somebody else and say, I, I'm not quite sure what to do. I have a, an idea in mind of what I would do. I, I, I have an idea of what maybe God wants me to do. But, but when I lay this out to you, how do you feel? What is the Lord speaking to you about? Is there anything that you're reading in Scripture right now that might give insight into what decision I make? Are you an open and teachable person? Do you seek out godly mentors? Do you listen and pray over their counsel? I can just give you two examples in our body of believers here at Ridgeline over the last week. I had a guy come to me and say, I'm looking, uh, a parent, a father of, of young kids, and, and I'm looking for somebody who's just a stage or two ahead of me to, to be a mentor for me. Another guy last week said, uh, I'm in this business situation and I just need godly counsel. Is there somebody around in our church that you would advise me to meet with? These are real-life examples of teachable men and and certainly women in our congregation as well that listen and pray and seek godly counsel. And it lines up with Scripture. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, the people fail, but in abundance of counselors there is victory. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool looks right in his own eyes, but a wise man is the one who listens to counsel. 
Proverbs 19, 20 through 21 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise for the rest of your days. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without consultation, a person's plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Have you ever felt frustrated in your life decisions? It could just be that you're not allowing the right people to have input and influence into the decisions that you're seeking to make. Listen, those are just four points that we can see in this passage demonstrating how Paul's life was enriched by the believers, the godly men and women that God put in his life. Hospitality, affection, prayer, godly counsel. There are certainly many other qualities of friendship that we enjoy with believers. So the general application to this part of the message is seek out and cultivate godly friendships. If you're a believer in Christ, there should be a believer. A godly man told me one time that he always seeks to have somebody who's a stage or two ahead of him that's walking ahead of him. He's always seeking to have a brother in Christ beside him on either side, two believers that he's walking with in the same stage of life, and then a younger believer or somebody in a previous stage of life that he's mentoring and discipling into, pouring his life into. That's a good plan if you're looking to seek out and cultivate godly friendships. If you're not experiencing this sort of Christian fellowship that that God intended for you, it could look like a frustrating life experience that you're having. We see this in Paul's life, and so my encouragement to you is to pray that God would bring godly friends into your life. I think that one of the more beautiful features of, of biblical Christianity is that God brings people into your life that you wouldn't on the surface choose. Have you ever noticed that? That that oftentimes God puts people within the body of Christ that are of different uh, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, in different ways. People that you wouldn't normally seek out. But if God has placed them here in this fellowship, and He's called you to this fellowship to walk, it's because He wants you to have this uh, different experience of godly friendships and counsel. And who knows how your life will be enriched by these relationships. I can remember after my conversion, uh, having only experienced friendships with people that were not believers, I I, I bonded with these new believers uh, my senior year of high school. Um, Angie, a guy named Aro, uh, another guy named Big John, Mike Brule, Jay Wendorf, the friend of his parents that that, uh, took me into their home. Those relationships, I still keep up with them. I texted Jay on his birthday in November and and showed him a picture of this gift that he gave me that I still treasure. Those bonds that we have in Christ that I particularly experienced, they're so powerful. There were a group of college guys that were a part of a ministry called Young Life that had me over to their college dorm for spaghetti night. Every week they would have spaghetti night on Tuesday nights, and they just invited this high school kid to come. And those sort of friendships left a deep, deep impact on me. Colossians tells us that we should be rooted and grounded in love. And those friendships that God provides for you within the body of believers often cement your faith. And if you're not experiencing those sort of relationships, It could be that you are isolating yourself from the body of Christ. There should be someone within the body that you feel vulnerable and open to and have this sort of godly relationship with. In Luke 24, 32, 
Jesus had walked with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And as he walked with them, he opened the scriptures to them. And, and, and as soon as they, uh, as soon as Jesus left them, uh, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And he opened up the scriptures to us. Jason, uh, Jay Windorf, my buddy, gave me a picture of that verse uh, with these uh, image of these two disciples. Somebody painted this picture. And that passage has um, cemented for us what it's like to walk with believers, that our hearts burn together as we seek Jesus together and walk in this way. Listen, Christian friendships are vital, especially as we bear a heavy burden of carrying our cross. Paul is dying to self Regularly on his way to Jerusalem, uh, impending martyrdom just within a decade, of possibly of this time, and, and it's it's vital to him to have these sort of relationships with these other believers. Listen, sometimes the bravest thing that you can do is just show up to church on Sundays. Some of you, it's a difficult thing, it's a painful thing, it's a hard thing when you're going through real life circumstances. Nobody knows what's going on uh, behind closed doors in someone else's home, and 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 at times uh, we we try to keep it that way. We try to keep things on a surface level, but but there's something beautiful about this particular fellowship that I've I've always loved about you, and that is that you ask each other how you're doing. I had somebody write in the intermission, how are you doing? No, how are you really doing, right? And, and just lovingly pressing in and, and being able to share burdens along the way. This is one of those beautiful features of a small fellowship-type church where um, it's often uncomfortable, it's sometimes difficult, but but this sort of love that is demonstrated in a room like this where, where believers are genuinely concerned for each other and caring for each other and inquiring each other about their lives... Oftentimes, maybe it makes coming to church difficult, but it's the bravest thing you can do is to enter into these kind of relationships knowing that they're motivated by love for Jesus. Galatians 2 through 5, 6, 2 through 5 tells us to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to fulfill the law of Christ? Bear each other's burdens. That passage uh, goes on to tell us, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his work, and then let his reason to boast will be in, in, not in himself alone and not in his neighbor. But each one should bear their own load. So in some way, we're called to bear our own load, but also called to bear the burdens of each other. And I think that distinction is important. Nobody can walk through some of the things that you've walked through. God has called you to do something just you. That load is something that you must bear alone, but, but having other believers around lightens that burden. Uh, Galatians 6.2, bear each other's burdens as each one of you bears your own load. The load that Paul was bearing in this passage demonstrates the cost of discipleship. His, his cross was a literal call to suffering and imprisonment. Paul was um, called to this suffering and there's a real price to pay for following Jesus. There's a real cost. Jesus said to carry your cross. Um, this is why we have a real problem with what's so-called the health and wealth gospel. The millions of people around the world are hearing this gospel that, that if you trust in Jesus, that he will make you healthy and prosperous and you will have money and you'll have uh, good health. Listen, none of those things... That was not, Paul knew nothing about the health and wealth gospel, all right? Every place that Paul went to, there was a cross and there was suffering. 
We are vehemently opposed to any gospel that does not include the real cost of following Jesus. Maybe you gave your life to Jesus years ago and, and, and your expectation was now life is going to be easy. Listen, there is nothing easy about following Jesus. He said that if, if they, if they persecuted me, that they will persecute you. And in this life, you will have many troubles and trials, but, but trust in me. I have survived. I have, uh, I will lead you through this. Paul knew nothing of the so-called health and wealth gospel. He only knew of this cost of discipleship. That's a book written by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a Lutheran pastor in the 1920s and 30s, and, and, and he stood completely opposed to the Nazi dictatorship. Uh, at some point, he escaped Germany, uh, but he felt so compelled to to go back and to pastor the church that was suffering there that he went back, uh, and then he was imprisoned, and then he was hanged. Uh, he was arrested in 1943, and a year and a half later, in Flossenburg uh, concentration camp, uh, he was hanged on April 9th, 1945, during the collapse of the Nazi regime. But he wrote this book, uh, "The Cost of, of um, the Cost of Discipleship," and it highlights this idea uh, that following Jesus will cost you something. Listen to a couple of these quotes from his book. He says, cheap grace is the grace that we often like to bestow on ourselves. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism into a church body without any expectation of church discipline. It's communion, uh, taking the bread and wine without any sense of confession. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. He also said, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. This is a picture of biblical Christianity, that following Jesus is going to cost you something. That there's going to be a moment where suffering is involved, and and yet Jesus promises to be with you in the midst of those times. Bonhoeffer lived that out, even unto martyrdom, and many of his friends thought he was crazy for going back to Germany once being free uh, and, and living in freedom in America. Uh, it, it was going to cost him his life, and yet he was compelled to go, and 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 he lived a full life. And so, a point that we can get from this is that there's something worse than dying. And that is not living your life well. Loving Jesus, following Jesus, carrying your cross, it's something that is um, costly. But there's a greater cost to not following Jesus. Jesus said uh, that uh, a man could gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul. And that that would be more costly in the end. Following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. We see this in the life of Paul. His declaration in this passage, I'm not only willing to go to Jerusalem, but I'm also willing to die in Jerusalem, demonstrates the cost of discipleship. He was willing to lay his life down completely so that he could say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I finished And there is laid up for me a crown of glory, and not only for me, but for all those who have endured. So my encouragement to you today is to continue to carry your cross. 
And as you do so, you're going to see a fellowship of the unashamed. It's this great poem, if you've never heard it, The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And it describes this Christian camaraderie that takes place with those who are bearing their cross and walking with Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time together today. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that demonstrates one of those aspects of following you that we don't often hear about, but we see it clearly here in this passage. We pray that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep within us, and that it might sprout and bear fruit so that we may look more and more like you. Help us today to walk with each other and to walk with you in such a way that we experience the fullness of life in Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.